Sometimes the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And here's your host, Ben Adelberg. Thanks again for joining me here at the back of the range. I'm your host, Ben Adelberg, and this is episode 12. As always, special thanks to Mitch Phillips. He makes us sound good each and every week. Want to know where else you can hear his voice? Check out mpvoice.com. I just got back from Ocala, Florida this past weekend, actually got away from the microphone and the editing, and was able to go play some golf. I played in the Florida State Senior Mid-Am 4-Ball, had a great time catching up with a lot of friends from all over the state that were in town for the tournament. Special congrats to Bob Campione and Doug Snope for picking up the victory in a playoff. If that name Doug Snope rings a bell, he was our guest here on the podcast back in January, um, episode three to be precise. Doug is no stranger to big golf events. He qualified for the 2012 U.S. Senior Open and was paired with Tom Watson and Fred Couples for the first two rounds. If you missed that episode, guess what? I'm going to tell you exactly where you can find it and all the previous ones that you might have missed. Our website is www.thebackoftherange.com. That's where you can find all of our episodes, links on how to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Overcast, you name it. And if you like the podcast so far, please leave a review and share it with your friends. If you're not following us on Instagram, I highly recommend you do so. We can be found at the Back of the Range Podcast. That's where you'll see some of the videos posted from our friends attending PGA Tour events from all over the country and information on giveaways that are coming very soon. Speaking of the PGA Tour, our guest this week is Peter Dasheson. For those of you that attend PGA Tour events or even watch them on TV, you've seen Peter and his colleagues each and every week inside the ropes with the best players in the world. However, unless they're blowing a horn to stop play or they're letting PGA Tour stars pick numbers out of their hats, you probably don't notice them. That's right. Peter is a PGA Tour rules official and has been on the job for the last four years. I was able to catch him before the Valspar Championship and he gave us some great insight on what it takes to run a PGA Tour event. Oh, and he could play a little bit too, even though it's like pulling teeth to get that out of him. I'm really looking forward to this episode, and I hope everyone enjoys it as well. So, Peter, thanks for making the time to join me here at the back of the range. Well, thanks for having me, Ben. Well, I'm, I'm glad we're able to catch it with your, uh, with your line of work. You're pretty much always on the road. Um, you're currently a PGA Tour rules official. Where did you just come back from? Just got back from the Waste Management Phoenix Open. So we had about just over 700,000 people for the week of, uh, of your closest friends. So it was a, <laughs> a, a wild, a wild week. This leads us into a great question. So is this the most difficult tournament for you to work just because of the infrastructure and the craziness and the environment of this place? Um, yes. Um, I mean, one day it's probably the most difficult place to work Saturday when they had just over 210,000 people there. Um, which uh, makes it a little difficult to navigate the golf course. Um, obviously, 16 with the stadium is kind of hard to get in uh, to. But you know, it's you know, it's the biggest golf tournament in the world. I mean, it, there's more people that go to this golf tournament than the uh, you know the U.S. Open. So it's a uh, it's a really unique week, um, and it's a fun week to work. Uh, the field is second to none, uh, certainly this early in the season. So it was. Uh, you know, we had uh, the golf course was great shape. The weather was perfect, and uh, you know we had a 
and another exciting finish. Gary Woodland was a he's a fantastic guy, and I uh, was going to be a great champion for Phoenix. Yeah, I was really happy to see uh, to, to see Gary Woodland win, being a being tied to the University of Kansas like he is. That was uh, that was pretty nice to see. So, um, well, I can't imagine what just dealing with with the uh, being on tour each and every week, or when you're when you're working events, and then just dealing with that. Um, how did just to kind of give listeners an idea of how you just got into the game of golf? We'll get to your amateur playing, and then the steps it took for you to get up to the to the PGA tour as a rules official, but how did you get into the game? Um, well, my father got me into the game back. Uh, I believe I started playing golf when I was eight years old. Uh, my father was a PGA professional in, um, New Jersey, uh, um, golf course called Mount Tabor. Um, and I really started getting in the game when we moved to Phillipsburg, New Jersey in 1980. Um, I wasn't necessarily a big fan of golf at the time. It was kind of too slow. I was certainly, more interested in playing um, basketball or um, some of the some of the faster moving sports, but uh, started playing golf and just just fell in love with it and started playing a lot of uh, junior events. Um, you know, quickly, you know, in the New Jersey State Golf Association, um, so the Met area. So kind of got in golf through my my family. My uncle's a PGA member, along with uh, you know, like I said, my father. So. Um, Kind of the family's been kind of in and out of golf for a long time. So, being the family business, did did you pretty much know that you were going to try and um, try and go that route, or, or you know, you obviously played in high school. You played. Did you play collegiately to to kind of get your game going to the next level? It was. Uh, I played a lot of basketball in high school and golf, and I kind of had my mind set on golf, uh, which may not have been you know the the right decision at the time, but I kind of. It was golf, golf, golf. I ended up going to a, a, a larger, graduated from high school from a class of 52 and went to go play golf at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte for about a year and a half and uh, stayed there for, like, like I said, a year and a half. College and I, we didn't get along too well. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, I, I kind of had, I had to, too much freedom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I like college so much, I went to several of them. So that's how much yeah. I like college. Which So you went to, to UNC Charlotte, played for a year and a half. Did you have the aspirations to to play professionally, or were you kind of thinking of following in your father's footsteps and going through the going the club route? I think as a uh, in high school, I was certainly thinking about playing professionally, and then when I got to college, I knew uh, I probably was not gonna. I didn't have the talent to play at that level. Um, growing up in New Jersey, there was only a few of us that could. Uh, uh, Michael Muir, who's a real good amateur player, I grew up playing golf with, and Robbie Bradley, another good amateur player that was about the three of us in new jersey and uh got to college and kind of saw a whole new world um so i think at that level it was just kind of like all right what am i going to do um and uh basically got into the golf business after spending a year and a half in college and went to work at fiddler's elbow in new jersey and um that's a great name of a golf course by the way yes it is and then uh Spent about a year and a half there and then got uh, kind of got my first assistance job at Plainfield Country Club in 1991, I think, or so. Kind of petered along at Plainfield Country Club for a couple of years, um, really not knowing what I wanted to do, just kind of I knew I knew golf and um, actually got out of the golf business for, went to go work for a member at Plainfield Country Club because uh, after spending a year and a half or two years at Plainfield working, hundred hours a week, kind of going, all right, is this something that I want to do the rest of my life? Kind of 
bounced back and forth in between jobs a little bit in the golf business and go and work for a member um, in the early 90s. And then um, a gentleman I was working with at Plainfield Country Club uh, got a job in Tampa in 1994 at Hunter's Green Country Club. And um, I actually came down to his wedding and uh, fell in love with Tampa and basically told him that you know, if you ever have a position down here in Tampa, I would, I would leave New Jersey and move to Tampa in three seconds. And about a week and a half later, that kind of all worked out and he got a job and he called me and moved to, uh, moved to Tampa and started working at Hunter's green back into the golf business. So you could see how, see how confused I was in my early (laughs) twenties. This isn't a therapy session. This is is a podcast interview. I can't solve everything for you right now, but, um, so, all right. So you, so you get down to Hunter's green down in, uh, down in Tampa, um, what was it about working at a, at a club? Were you teaching a lot or were you just kind of in the shop? What was it about that experience there that kind of led you to maybe I, I want to be in golf, but I just, I don't want to be at a club. We were teaching quite a bit. Uh, Hunter's Green was a club corporation of America, CCA course. So we were doing a lot of, a lot of shop work. And, um, I mean, this is kind of where I think I found at Hunter's Green, I kind of found my niche in the golf business. I, I, I still feel like I, I knew I, I didn't necessarily want to be a head golf professional, especially moving from the New Jersey PGA, which was probably one of the top sections in the, in the country. Um, and then moving down here to North Florida PGA and the golf courses, you know, were more, um, you know, the, the head professional did a, a completely different job. They were, you were a little bit more in the shop and you spent more time driving around golf courses and, and, um, you know, you didn't play as much and maybe, and you weren't certainly being able to play for a lot of money, but what we did at Hunter's green is when we, we would run golf tournaments, um, the member guests or club championship, I kind of, that was the niche. I think that I finally found out in the golf business that, Hey boy, I really love, I, I, I knew nothing about the rules at the time, but when those events would come along, that was the best times to be at the club running those events and being around the members and their guests and watching them compete and setting up a golf course and, you know, this and that. So that kind of was a, uh, you know, in the 97, 98 timeframe, that was kind of the, the time where I was like, all right, if I could get into some type of golf administration, this could be, I, you know, I may have finally found my ticket in, okay. in the, in, you know, to stay in the golf business, but not have to deal with the day in day out of what, you know, the PGA professionals, um, you know, the difficulties that he kind of has to, you know, go through. Right. So you basically just really liked the aspect and apparently just that led you into, uh, working at the Florida state golf association. So you really liked the, the, the process of putting on a tournament, setting it up, promoting it, being the face of it, answering questions, organizing these, these events. So how did you transition from Hunter's green to being a tournament director at the Florida state golf association? Jim Demick, the executive director of the Florida State Golf Association, or was hired in 19, I think, 97, currently still there. He was a member at Hunter's Green and uh, got to know Jim pretty well. Um, he was moving the office from Sarasota when he was hired. He was traveling back and forth to Sarasota from New Tampa, which is about an hour drive. And I believe the board finally approved to uh, move the office of Tampa. And not everybody was going to... Uh, make the transition from Sarasota to, you know, to Tampa. And, and I think, I think he walked into, I was having one of those days in the, in, in the golf business dealing with members, I guess. And I think he walked into the office and uh, 
I basically jokingly said to him, listen, if you have a job available, I'll, I'll take it and just move on. And, and, uh, you know, fortunately he called me a few days later and asked me if I was serious. Cause he always thought knowing my history and, you know, with my family being PJ members, he just always thought I, you know, would want to go down that route. Right. And I said, well, yeah, I would love to talk to you and try to figure out a position or just move on because I'm ready to, you know, what, what he had available to be able to run golf tournaments and was very intriguing for me. So Sure. Well, I mean, it's pretty common knowledge that the Florida State Golf Association is pretty much the largest state association in the country with the amount of tournaments yep. and, and qualifiers and different championships that they do. Um, can you speak to just the, the size of what that operation is on a, a year-to-year basis? I know you're not there anymore. You've moved on. You're with the PGA Tour as a rules official. But just the, the general scope of what you would do on a year-to-year basis. Well, um, it's, it's certainly – I've been with the Tour for four and a half years, and it's amazing how much it's grown in four and a half years uh, uh, compared to where it was – I mean, if you look back at 2000 and look at a schedule in 2000 when I started, but we, um, you know, we got, you know, obviously a large number of volunteers, largest probably second to the USGA that are able to want, you know, run qualifiers. Um, you know, when I started, I think it was just Les Brown and I and Jack Poltorek and Jim Demick, um, and certainly some handicaps, handicap staff. Um, and, uh, you know, we spent, spent, you know, you know, all summer, I guess when I started, it was basically, we spent the summers running golf tournaments and the winters preparing for the next summer. Now by 2004 or five or about 2004 or five, it basically became a year round association. You really didn't have any time to, to have any, uh, downtime or running, running all kinds of golf tournaments year round. Then the junior tour started and you know, shoot, I think they're up to over 600 some odd days of competition a year, if you could imagine that. So, um, you know, we did scheduling, you know, dealing with scheduling 600 days of competition a year takes a, a lot of, uh, a lot of coordination from a number of people. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it, it's an incredible 17 years or 20 years, I guess, Jim Demick, when he first started in 97, to where Jim has taken the association now is, is, um, it's just incredible yeah. you know, by far the best golf association in the country. I know I'm a little biased, but I, uh, we, we get to see a lot of different associations in my travels now and it's, they are second to none. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've, I've heard that, uh, heard that sentiment quite a bit as well. So, um, before we discuss a little bit about what you're doing now with the PGA Tour, you did get your amateur status back after being a professional at, at Plainfield and at Hunter's Green. Uh, I don't have your full record of what uh, what you've accomplished, but I do know that you've you've won the Gasparilla Invitational record five times, and that's in your own back that was in your own backyard of Tampa. Speak a little bit about what the Gasparilla Invitational is all about. Well, um, yeah, I got my amateur back in 2002 and, um, I, uh, went to Gil Gonzalez at Pomacia Golf and Country Club, which is a old school, great Donald Ross, uh, golf course. Um, and asked Gil for an invitation just to, so I could just start, just wanted to play a little bit. Um, you know, after getting my amateur status, I kind of had a, a little bit of a, 
I was looking forward to compete and play because it really didn't matter. You know, you didn't have any members that played with you that said, Oh my gosh, you shot 80. Um, so I, uh, started practicing playing and played in Gasparilla. It's kind of in that, that first year is kind of a, uh, just a, just to play, play golf for three days in a row. Um, have probably hadn't done that in years prior to that. And, um, one thing led to another and I won that event that year. And, uh, you know, just fell in love with the golf tournament, everything that Palmasia, um, would, uh, preaches the golf course, the way they treat you. Um, I played in a number of team events there at a black mask. So, um, I love the golf course, um, and just kind of fell in love a little bit with the golf tournament and, uh, started playing a little bit more, uh, on the amateur side, actually played in a few of the Florida state golf associations, played in a, I think one state amateur and a few mid amateurs and, uh, and was fortunate enough. I could, I guess, competed in Gasparilla for about, uh, 12 years or so prior to getting the job out here on the PJ tour. And, uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to win, you know, a handful of times, just kind of got lucky a little bit, I guess. Sure. Got lucky five times. Okay. Um, <laughs> and, uh, let me guess the, the course record, I believe you still hold that. Is that, was that still 62 still have that in place? Well, yeah, I would, I'm not sure. I shot 62. Uh, so that's a tournament record and 62. And, oh, that's uh, right. tournament record may not it be was a, record. well, I think it, I think it tied Doug LaCrosse's course record at the time, but the, I don't know what they do now. They, Bobby Weed has, has, uh, redesigned the, not redesigned or restored the golf course a little bit or modernized the golf course. So I'm not sure, uh, I'm not sure how they, what, what they look at for, for their records, but right. I know, I think 62 was a, I, I, I'm sure Doug LaCrosse, who's only probably played out at Palmasia a couple million times, has shot at least 62 out there one time. Hey, if you're in the same sentence as Doug LaCrosse, you're doing something right. Yeah, yeah. Doug's a great guy. Yes, he is. So we're, you've moved on uh, from, from FSGA. You move into the move to the PGA tour. How did now, how did that job come about? I'm, I'm guessing you weren't just expressing frustration at the FSGA and someone from the PGA tour said, Hey, if you really want to leave, we got a job for you next <laughs> week. So I'm guessing it was a little bit tougher than, than that. So, um, how did that position just kind of come about and, and what led you to make the decision to go there? Well, you're right. I, I mean, to leave the FSGA was, um, I mean, I always had a goal when I was hired in 2000, um, a good friend of mine who was a PJ tour playing, uh, uh, PJ tour player, uh, or represented hunters green, Steven tool, who is also on our staff, uh, now was hired. Uh, he left, he left, uh, he stopped playing professional and the tour and, uh, got into golf administration and went to work for web doc or Nike tour at that time. And, um, he had, he had mentioned in 2000 when I got the job, he said, listen, this is, you know, you need to kind of think about this going down the line. And, um, so I always had in the, in, in the back of my mind to try to take the opportunity that I had with the FSGA, knowing that I had a, um, you know, I had a, uh, you know, a guy that could introduce me to, uh, you know, the, you know, the, I guess the people that would hire out on the tour, because it's certainly not an easy job to get. You kind of need to know, need to get to know someone inside to kind of get your foot in the door. Um, sure. So, you know, in the back of my mind, I always wanted to work, work for the tour and try to do everything I did 
at the Florida State Golf Association to try to help help me or you know, whether it was running the state amateur or the Florida open or try to do whatever I could to try to turn those golf tournaments into a, you know, a small, you know, as good as they could be, um, you know, small web.com event. If you'd per se, look at it and look at some of the, you know, the places that we were playing in the state amateur and try to go out and set up golf courses that have hosted major championships. Um, so, you know, in the back of my mind, I always wanted to work out there, but it certainly took a lot longer. I first interviewed for a Nike tour job in 2004 and then interviewed in 2008 for another job. And then, uh, interviewed in 2013 and, uh, finally was hired in 2014. Um, so, you know, Steve got my foot in the door back in 2004. Um, and, you know, fortunately my name stayed in the, uh, somewhat in the rotation to keep coming out and help the tour here and there um, was fortunately after 10 years of persistence or they were just sick and tired of bringing me out and they were <laughs> just saying, might as well hire this guy. He's been sticking around. Sure. Um, um, you know, that's kind of how it came about, but you know, there was a lot more, even though that was my, my goal. I mean, certainly, you know, the people that I had a chance to uh, meet and work with, um, starting with Jim Demick, uh, you know, certainly his, his leadership at the FSGA taught me a, a lot um, and spending a lot of time with Jack Boltorek, who's retiring from the FSGA this year, spending hours with him talking about rules and certain, uh, you know, certain situations with Jack and then, you know, working with, you know, our volunteer group uh, who was, like I said, second to none guys like, you know, Charlie Bedford, who's worked, you know, 20, 25 U.S. Opens and learned how to officiate, and um, Mallory Privet, you know, the list goes on and on, sure. you know, spending time with these guys that have that were able to, uh, you know, because when I started with the FSGA, I had uh, one of the one of the downsides that Jim was looking at is I had no rules experience and I couldn't open a computer. So um, <laughs> it was taking a little bit of a gamble. So you know, I, have noticed, the first, I, have, I have noticed that a lot of the FSGA, the newer employees are a lot younger and I'm thinking to myself, okay, they're hiring people that know computers now. That's good. That's a good oh, yeah, sign. Yeah. So it's really good yeah. to see that. Yeah. I, I don't know if I knew how to open it or, or I'm um, probably could open it, but not turn it on. Uh-huh. It's kind of, you know, funny story. Jack Platoric and I were, we were hired together. Um, and Jack was very proficient on the rules of golf as a volunteer at the FSGA. And, um, I, I believe Jim always tells, tells, uh, tells a story that Jack and I were kind of a package deal. He was kind of holding off until Jack said yes, because he knew he might be able to help me open up a computer and then obviously teach me the rules a little bit. So, but you know, Jack had no knowledge of the golf business, which I had, which I had obviously growing up in the golf business. I could kind of, I could kind of fake myself around a golf tournament if I had to. Uh, so it was, uh, of a package deal but learning from everybody you know you know the tom dudley's of the world and and you know getting to meet some of our players and talk to the you know rick wolf's and the joe alfieri's and you know like you said doug lacrosse's and spend time with a lot of these guys that have played in numerous national championships um and you know for us to go prepare a golf course for guys that have played in all these major championships. It was, it was, it was fun to 
it was fun to challenge and 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 try to you know turn the FSGA uh, be a small part of 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 trying to transform the FSGA into what it was uh, over those over, over those years. So, sure. like I said, there was a goal there, but it was uh, um, it was something that I wanted to do, uh, you know, to move on, but it was certainly a, you know, a hard decision. It wasn't, you know, when I didn't get all those jobs, it was like, Oh, now I gotta go back to the FSGA. Well, shoot, the FSGA was a blast, not only to, to work at, but just to be around all the guys and travel and be at the golf tournament. So it was a, you know, it wasn't that big of a deal. So being on the, the PGA tour week in and week out, um, and we've spoken about this previously for the average golf fan that's either at a tournament or watching on TV, there's, you know, pretty much three times that they're going to see a rules official on TV or, or in person for that matter. They're going to see him give a ruling. They're going to see them blow a horn or they're going to see them with, you know, little strips of paper in their hat where the players draw a number for the playoff. And pretty much that's about it. Um, can you just speak to what your day to day, you know, from, from when you get to the golf course and just all the things that you're responsible to do that make a PGA tour event just look like it's just running seamlessly without any sort of, um, you know, interruption. What are the things that you're responsible for when you get on site? Well, first of all, when you, you know, mentioned those three times are on TV, those are all the, all the, you know, three of the worst times we could be on TV, right? We don't, you know, you don't want to be seen on TV given a ruling because obviously there's probably a bad situation. If we're blowing a horn, there's, there's bad weather. So that kind of, right. Well, the weather's out of your control. Yeah, and, then, and then of course, <laughs> a, and then of course, a but, playoff, um, I guess the networks don't like that too much, but that's, again, that's, that's, not or, right. yeah. you know, we're trying to, you know, we're trying to, you know, it's cutting into our, uh, might be cutting into a couple cold ones, uh, you know, in the, you know, in the rules office at, you know, those extra five, six holes. And considering we've had a playoff every, every week this year, it's been, uh, it's been kind of interesting. Um, but, uh, what we do day in and day out, there's a, there's a lot to our job, uh, that I think people wouldn't really know. Um, I'll just kind of reference the, the Valspar championship, which I'm, um, I'm heavily involved in. I'm, I'm the advanced rules official there, which the advanced rules official is, uh, it's, it's kind of his event. Um, Mark Russell's the tournament director, but I work, um, year, you know, all year with Tracy West and her staff on the Valspar championship, whether, um, you know, whatever they're going to do for the build out, um, anything they're going to try to do new for the golf tournament. So I'm constantly working with Tracy and Valspar is coming up in a couple of weeks. So I'll end up getting to Innisbrook two weeks prior or a week prior to the golf tournament. So I'll, I'll arrive the Monday prior, which, um, I'm, uh, again, driving a golf course with, with, uh, Zach Labby, who will be their director of operations. So we're making sure all the, all the structures that we talked about are in the right spot. Um, anything, anything operationally we need to, to make sure uh, is correct. Um, and as the week goes on, we're just kind of dealing with, with headquarters, with field commitments. Um, you know, we don't do the pairings, but we're dealing with the tournament director with their sponsor exemptions and their, um, you know, on their field. And then later in the week, we end up, um, I'll end up marking the golf course for the, uh, 
for the tournament, you know, any, anything that needs to come up that, uh, you know, if I have any questions or this or that, generally call Mark Russell, who will be the final decision maker. But, um, you know, I'm responsible marking the golf course. Sure. we got to make sure the roping and staking is correct. So a lot of the stuff that, you know, the, the average person that shows up on, you know, that Wednesday or Thursday of tournament week, that's all done. You know, everything that's up on the golf course, the advance official is generally responsible for. Shot link comes in on Wednesday, um, and, you know, you're reviewing with shot link where all the shot link towers or cameras are going to go. All the, all, this, all the stuff you see at pjatour.com that shot link provides, the advance, you know, the advance rules official is dealing with all, the, all those logistics as well to make sure all those structures are placed in the right spot. Um, so, you know, advance week is a lot of, uh, a lot of paperwork, a lot of marking. Um, and like I said, you're dealing, um, or you're working with that golf tournament, the superintendent, the tournament director, the general manager at the club year in and year out on changes to the golf course, um, you know, whatnot. So then the next, the next week, let's just say, um, you know, on, on Tuesday, so you have an advance official and tournament director, uh, like I said, Mark Russell and I, so that's two of the, two of the eight, uh, people that will work, um, in Tampa, the rest of the staff, uh, the rest of the six staff members arrive Tuesday morning. And what, what I'll do is assign two. That's Tuesday of tournament week, right? Yeah. Tuesday of tournament week. You'll have the, uh, the six other referees that are working Valspar will show up. And basically what I'll, I'll assign the um, I'll assign two of those people to course setup. So um, Brad Fable on our staff has set up the back nine at Innisbrook the last couple of years, which you'll probably do again this year, and we'll assign one other person to set up the front. So I, you know I've been there for a week, but for course setup wise, I've I've all I've really done is uh, is um, uh, mark the golf course. And I, I guess maybe I'll take a step back also. Advance week, we also have an advanced agronomist. So Chuck Green is our agronomist uh, for Valspar, which, again, he's working with the, the golf course superintendent year in and year out to, you know, his program and, and whatnot. So Chuck and I work closely advance week about green speeds. Um, you know, what's our optimal green speed when the course setup guys go out? You know, for instance, at, at Innisbrook, our optimal uh, speed is about 12. Uh, and then rough heights, uh, you know, rough height is three inches, two and three quarters or three inches. Um, so we're working on all that advance week, Chuck and I, and then, um, so to jump back to, um, you know, tournament week, we'll sign two guys to go set up the golf course and Brad Fable and, you know, the referee a will be responsible for the four hole locations that we play during the tournament and T locations. Sure. Um, so it's not necessarily me. It's those, those two guys, he's, they're working closely with, with Mark or myself, if they have any questions or, uh, they'll work with Chuck green. If like, Hey, could we, you know, we could certainly take some more speed on the greens or, you know what, we're going to have a lot of wind. Let's, uh, let's push these greens back. Um, and then the rest of the staff is, you know, then you got, um, we've got four of the guys and they're going to sign, we'll sign two guys to checking uh, checking setup and two guys, the lead groups monitor pace of play. So, you know, the checkers will, you know, the guys that are setting up are actually, um, 
they set up for the next day each day. So the guys that are checking will go check out the setup for um, for that current day. They're out checking bunkers, checking for any damage in the fairways that might have happened overnight, and also making sure the whole location that the course setup officials have uh, selected is, is correct, sure. pacing-wise and whatnot. Because those setup guys, when you're out on Thursday morning getting your Thursday whole location, they're actually – they're spending more time thinking about Friday right. and Friday they're thinking about Saturday. So uh, that's, you know, the checker's job is, is actually kind of important to make sure uh, we haven't, haven't missed a, missed a step here or there, or some bunkers that are get a little bit out of, out of whack from some maybe animal damage. And, and then basically when the setup officials are done and the checking officials are done, we, we spread out amongst our, you know, the golf course, uh, Innisbrook is a relatively easy golf course to uh, officiate, but, you know, we kind of stay, like you said, if we're not called in for a ruling or we have bad weather, we're generally never seen uh, because we're, we're, we're sitting outside the ropes. Um, we're not part of the competition. We don't have walking rules officials. Sure. So um, we probably spend more time talking to spectators on quiet days than we do, uh, you know, dealing with players. So, um, you're, so but, the bulk of your job is basically before everything gets going, and then once the tournament starts, you just try and stay out of sight, out of mind, and just observe and and let the tournament flow naturally. Uh, yes, yeah. uh, you know, contrary to the general public, we spend probably eighty five percent of our time when you're dealing with on a, say if we don't have any bad weather that we have to deal with eighty eighty five percent of the time all we're doing is talking about pace of play. Yeah. Well, um, I'm glad you came. So, to, yeah. That's, that's, that's something I was going to bring up before I bring up that though. I want to ask you about pin positions. Um, is there kind of a, a standard that you go by as far as how many maybe necessarily, um, you know, pins in the front of a green compared to the pins in the back, or do you try and do maybe, uh, you know, six, tough pin positions and then six medium ones and six easy ones. Is there any kind of framework that you guys go off of for that? Well, the six, six, six is not necessarily a, uh, you know, that, that really doesn't work because, you know, if I pick six hard hole locations, then, you know, as good as you are, you might think they were, they weren't that hard. They were easy hole locations. So everybody has a, a, a little bit of different opinion on, sure. on hole locations. So, you know, surprise, um, Weather dictates, you know, on the tour, the weather will dictate a lot. So if, if it was going to be windy and if a player, um, you know, if the, if the wind was blowing, blowing hard left to right at 20 miles an hour, um, you know, you're certainly not going to want to stuff a bunch of hole locations uh, on the left-hand side where the player has no really room to work the golf ball. So um, the advance official will get the, uh, you know, we have a DTN meteorologist that will work each event. Uh, for us and they provide the weather forecast and the advance officials will will look at the weather and certainly take the weather into account when setting hole locations um certainly windier days you might want to be a little bit softer sure um but you want a good balance of left lefts and rights um one of our one of our longtime tournament directors always likes to see uh if it works out he would like to see um each day on 18 or 9 finish left right left because that doesn't give a, you know, a hooker or fader 
uh, an advantage if it was a left, left, right, or a right, right, left. He kind of likes it to go back and forth. Um, something to think about when you're, you know, setting up a golf course, but you want good balance on your lefts and rights and obviously balance on front middles and backs. But if you're playing a golf course that, you know, the greens are concrete, you know, you certainly might favor some uh, more, more back hole locations. So I think course conditions and weather conditions will kind of dictate your balance a little bit, but you certainly just want to be thinking about, you want to take all that into account, weather, course conditions, green speeds, um, certainly if you got some slower greens at 10 or 11, uh, you might be a little bit more aggressive on a slope. Um, you know, you certainly don't want, you know, I kind of look at a whole location, you know, if you hit a putt from three feet, you know, you don't want that putt breaking four inches, right, you know, maybe right. outside, you know, outside right edge or outside left edge is probably a good start. Um, you know, you don't want that big duck hook, uh, from three feet that will tend to get you in a little bit of in a quandary out on the tour. You might hear some stuff at scoring. Well, so you mentioned that. So obviously in the heat of the moment when someone walks off, when a professional walks off the course and they had a bad day, you may hear something in scoring. And, and you know, that's that's a very emotional response, obviously, because it's their it's their profession. They're trying to make a cut or, or trying to get into the top 10. But is there any sort of a official process where you hear constructive feedback from the, the PGA Tour pros about... Um, I guess just as a, I mean, to, to lack of a better term, just like a, you know, a customer survey, so to speak, where they come in and at the end of the term, they say, well, you know, we, we, we liked the tees setup. We didn't like the green setup. We, we thought this could be better. Do you get any sort of official feedback from, uh, from the players and, and take that information and have that transition into future events? Yeah. You always welcome feedback. Um, I mean, these are the best players in the world and uh, they, uh, they could certainly, uh, if you have, you know, we do have a number of players that will, you know, seek you out, uh, you know, maybe the next week and say, you know, I know you set up last week. I'd, I'd like to, uh, you know, can you tell me what you were thinking, how you were setting up hole 12? And you kind of give them your, your scenario. And, and um, you know, depending on who the player is, if, if he's one of the guys that, you know, just like any other sport or any club business, there's there's a number of guys out there that you could listen to that, are, you know, or are constructive. Some of the guys are just like any other thing. They're just kind of complaining, just want to get something off their chest. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so, I mean, it's no different than any other business, but you're always, I mean, you're always seeking out information, um, from the best players in the world. We, I mean, we, we probably hear the most, um, we actually have, uh, um, we have, two scoring officials each week. Um, and the scoring officials are basically the buffer between the players and, uh, and the rules officials. You know, you can imagine we're generally the guys that are, we're the group of guys that are generally telling the player no a lot. Sure. No, you can't get relief, you know, get off the range now because the pro am is going to start or this or that. So the scoring officials are, um, obviously they start, they start each wave and then, you know, they're scoring it. So when we get in, if we're going to hear any constructive criticism, usually it's the player talking to, you know, a Montana Thompson or Johnny Williams or a Colin Murray in the scoring area that says, man, whoever set up the back nine, the whole location on 12 was, what was he thinking? Sure. It was, I can't believe it. And then when the day's over, we generally ask the scoring officials any chirping in okay. the 
scoring area, and they will say, well, yeah, you know, Pete, that, <laughs> that heard a lot of guys talking about the whole location on 12, so you might, you know, you might hear something next week or this or that. So they're kind of our buffer in between the, the players. But there are a number of players that will, you know, I'm going on my four. I've been out there four and a half years, so I'm still generally the, I'm the, I'm the guy with red hair, new guy. New guy. So, you know, still the new guy. Usually it takes about five or six years to a lot of these guys get to know your name, uh, you know, week in and week out. So, uh, you know, if you, you know, you do hear a little bit. Sure. If, if you can, if you, uh, who in your, your four or five years that you've been out there, um, uh, who on the tour, when you hear their comments, you really kind of take them to, take them to heart and, and it's a little bit more than just maybe chirping. It's more of like, well, okay, I, I really, I value this player's input maybe a little bit more than others. Is there some players that you see that, okay, I, I, I really value their input on this. I want to look at this. Um, I, I guess I could tell you last week I set up the back nine at Phoenix and um, Aaron Badaway, who's probably one of the nicest guys out there. Uh, just like a Gary Woodland. He's a he's a member at TPC Scottsdale, and I was setting up the back nine for the first time. And on Wednesday, um, he was out playing his back nine practice round, and I was going to try to use a couple new hole locations on the 13th hole just to, you know, because the worst thing you could do is, you know, the caddies or the players, when you're going out setting up, they're going to go, hey, you guys using the same pins as last year? Right, right. And it's like, oh, gosh, what are our guys just, just, you know, using the same same sheet? And, you know, this and that. So I was trying to find a couple different hole locations and he was going down to 13th hole. And, I, you know, I just actively went over to Aaron and said, Hey, listen, I'm thinking about going here and here. What do you think? Um, you know, the whole location's never been here before. And we kind of looked at it and chatted about it and he gave some feedback. Fortunately it was positive. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, you know, you know, and kind of went with it. Um, a guy like Charlie Hoffman, um, who's critical, but he's also when, you know, when we do some, some really good things with core setup and really bad conditions, he'll be one of the first people, if he's interviewed, say, Hey, PJ tour staff did a nice job this week. You know, those are probably two of the, you know, two of the stories that I can think of. Sure. Which player you think would, would possibly be a good rules official someday. If for some reason they just Ooh. didn't want to play and they just were like, I, or, or, you know, God forbid there was an injury and they just, you know, something that they would find interesting or, or they'd like to, to do something similar to what, you know, like Brad Fable did and a player on the tour that ends up being a rules official. Is there anyone that immediately jumps out? You can just point at and say, man, that guy'd be a pretty good official. <laughs> they're all making, <laughs> they're all making so much money now. I don't think they'll need another job, even if, if they start playing. Well, that. You know, times get um, tough, but you know, <laughs> it's always good to save for the future or maybe just, you know, there's nothing, you got to stay active. You got to keep the mind sharp, you know, part-time work, volunteering, I, I don't know. Just who who has the personality to to possibly do that? Oh gosh, that's a good, great question. Um, I don't know, Ben. I'd have to think about it. Okay, okay, we we can call me off guard. And I, well, I'll we'll come back to that one later. I'll tag um, that on at the end. Yeah. So yeah, but yeah, uh, I'm but trying you, to think about who when we. Uh, I'm just trying to think about who knows the rules pretty well out there. You you mentioned you mentioned the, knowing the rules. Uh, what you know most. Most professions, whether you're in the business world or you're a physician or you're um, uh, an attorney, you, there's always continuing education. There's always new laws or new rules or new procedures that you have to keep up to date on. 
Um, obviously, we're going to have some new PGA or some new rules of golf in 2019. So there's going to be new things to take a look at. But what kind of continuing education does a PGA Tour rules official have to endure and 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 work on throughout the year? Well, um, you know, fortunately, you know, when we're when we're working, we spend you know quite a bit of time in a rules trailer discussing certain situ- situations that have happened week in and week out. Um, you know, you're, you know, you're constantly reading and updating yourself on the book. Um, so we spend so much time on planes. It's just, if you need, you know, maybe a little incentive to go to sleep, just get the decision book out and try to read a little bit and, um, just, you know, keep that going. And, you know, a number of us will go to the USJ PGA rules workshop, um, each year in January or March, depending on travel schedule. Um, so, you know, we do, you know, we do a lot of that. There's a number of us that might might help out associations in their state and teach. Uh, so you're staying sharp there. Um, so you're just keeping but, immersed. You know, when you're it. around, yeah. yeah. I mean, when you're around 13 or 14 guys that are officiating on the tour, and you're spending so much time in rules trailers and out on the golf course, we spend a lot of time just, you know, talking about the rules and scenarios and and try to get better because, you know, no matter how probably have the best committee in the world and uh, we still have, you know, situations that we will throw a scenario out on the, on the radio to make sure, you know, we, you know, get, you know, we're getting this situation correct. We're just ruling correct. Now there's, you know, there's nobody on our staff that's, you know, has the ego not to be able to say, Hey guys, just let me double check and, you know, get some confirmation from, from the rest of the group. So, um, you know, you're just, trying to stay fresh. However, like you said, next year is going to be a pretty, pretty big change in the rules of golf with the uh, 2019 standardization, modernization, whatever, whatever the USGA is calling it right now. Um, sure. It's going to be pretty interesting because, you know, I think we'll probably be getting some information about it, but I don't think any of us want to touch it with a 10 foot pole right now because it's so different than what we're dealing with right now. I, I- kind of like, let's get, let's get to December and then we could start reading. Sure. Yeah. You know, I'm looking at some of these rules that are, that are coming out and I'm just a quick summary with, with what is proposed and different things where, um, you know, first of all, you're, you're changing the, the search time from five minutes to three minutes. Um, you know, there's, there, there's good ones that are, there's pretty easy ones, you know, accidentally touching the ball, you know, similar to what happened to Dustin Johnson at Oakmont in the, in the U S open. Those are no penalty. If the ball inadvertently touches you, things like that. I think the dropping height is no longer shoulder height. It's lower little things like that. But I, I'm almost thinking that the first few months or even the first year when these rules come out, it might actually slow down play on the PGA tour. Cause professionals will be so uncertain about what the rule is they'll be very cautious and will call in an official do you see that potentially happening it could i mean you know i think even at this level even even now i mean there's guys since you're playing for so much money um, i think some of the you know the spectators or television viewers when they see a guy needing help to get off a cart path uh uh, they might be like, gosh, I cannot, it, you know, Simple this is rule, their profession. Yeah. They're taking relief from a, you know, from a cart path. And, you know, with the new, with the new change, not taking call-ins um, right now might help that because if a player does do something uh, on television that is not caught by a, by a, uh, you know, a rules official or one of our 
our rules officials watching television because um, we do have some people watching television. We can't take call-ins, but we're you know we're we have people actively watching the telecast. Um, you know, it may or may not, but you, you know, you have stuff that might speed up play with being able to uh, putt with the flag stick in. So maybe a guy that's got a 90 foot putt opposed to having his caddy go up there and attend it. Maybe he'd just play knowing sure. that there's no, no penalty to hit the, hit the flag stick. But I think it's, um, yeah. I mean, being able to ground your club and I think in a hazard or penalty area, as we're going to call it, um, you know, move stuff in a, in a penalty area. Bunkers will be a little bit different. I don't, you know, you're not gonna be able to ground your club in a bunker or take practice swings right. from what I understand. Um, it could, it could slow down playing, uh, 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 you know, initially shoot. It might slow down our rulings because <laughs> we might be throwing more, more rulings over the radio going, I just want to make sure this is correct. Right. Sure. Absolutely. Um, you know, for us, because, yeah. you know, you know, we have a guy on our staff that's on the joint rules of golf committee, Steve Tool. So it's, um, he's constantly working with the USGA and the RNA with some of these changes. So I can't imagine how, how hard it is for Steve to, uh, decompress. Uh, he was just in a meeting in Miami about all these, all these changes. And now he's in LA getting ready to advance the Genesis open. So next week he has to decompress and try to all the stuff that he's talked about for two, three days, or got to put that in the back <laughs> on the back burner. So, right. um, I guess this also leads into the fact that, you know, when you look at other major sports and you see, you know, players on the, you know, players in the NBA getting into the face of, of, of a, of a, you know, referee and you see, you know, the, the uh, traditional uh, batter uh, complaining balls and, you know, arguing balls and strikes with an umpire and then getting tossed out of a game. That's not really the dynamic with a PGA tour rules official and the player. You guys are, you're trying to work as a, team so to speak to make sure that they are in compliance with the rules so they do not get penalties or disqualified you're trying to protect them and and the the rest of the field by adhering to the rules correct uh yes yeah i mean we're trying to by the times where it could get a little um i don't know what the right word is maybe a little intense between the official and the players when they're when they're seeking relief from a you know an area on the golf course that that uh, we have to call a ball or strike say a you know, a little bit of a, a bad area or somewhere, sure. you know, you know, an area that we're not going to give relief from. It's just kind of, Hey, this is just, this is what we have this week. That's when it gets a little, uh, could get testy with the player, um, thinking that he should get relief and, you know, you just gotta, just gotta walk in there and, and, you know, give the player, you know, your answer, never say, I'm sorry, just say, you know, no relief and move on. Um, you know, the, you know, what's, what's nice about our sport is that actually that player has a second opinion. If he, if he felt strong enough about it, he could, he could ask that official who gave him the bad news for a second opinion. Um, and then another official will come in and call it a ball or strike. Um, so, uh, but generally we're, we're, we're dealing, you know, the players in a stressful situation, they want to get relief, you know, grandstand, cart path, water hazard, whatever it may be. And they just want to get playing golf again. So 90, 85% of the time, it's, it's very, uh, we have a nice professional working relationship with the players. Sure. And then, and you know, you're seeing these guys on a week to week basis. I mean, it's not all about, uh, them being in the heat of battle, just, you know, with, between Thursday and Sunday, you're seeing these guys on the, on the range, you're seeing them in proams interacting with, uh, sponsors. Is it just, 
I mean, what's the dynamic Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday compared to, to, to tournament rounds? Well, for us, it remains a professional, you know, relationship with the players. You know, we're not, uh, you know, we're not palling around with them or this or that, but you do, you, you know, you do get to see our athletes, uh, on that Tuesday and Wednesday in a completely different, different light on the driving range, uh, interacting, you know, with us, um, or interacting with, you know, the players, um, uh, you know, obviously this young group of players has a little bit of a club membership relationship with these, you know, the Jordan, Jordan Spies and the Justin Thomases of the world. It's kind of a, it's a little bit different than, uh, 25, 30, 40 years ago. It's, uh, it's like, you know, you, you, know, you watch these young group of kids are actually, you know, they're rooting for one another. You see, uh, you, you know, you see them staying late on Sunday to go watch a playoff of one of their buddies, which, yeah. you know, I don't know if you, you, I mean, I don't recall it watching golf years ago and certainly wasn't out there, but you know, you, you don't know if that was the case 25 years ago. No. So, not. um, you know, you're dealing, you know, we deal with the players, like I said, in a very professional manner. Um, you know, that Tuesday or Wednesday could be that time that you were talking about Ben, where they want to pull you aside and talk about your core setup. So sure, yeah. <laughs> in a nice, friendly, casual <laughs> manner. So, Sure. Um, so bef- I'm, I'm not going to hit on every single, I mean, you've, you've been a rules official for, for quite some time and have, uh, officiated, uh, at, uh, you know, uh, all sorts of PGA tour events and, and, uh, us open sectional qualifiers and, and collegiate, uh, you know, the t- 2001 NCAA division one women's championship you're at and, and web.coms, but you did work the masters in 2016, and um, what is it about working the Masters that's different from a standard PGA Tour event? Is there anything, obviously the procedures, but what can you share about that facility and, and Augusta National that's just a little bit different than the uh, typical PGA Tour event as far as your responsibilities or just a, a general vibe? Well, any of the majors, when we are invited to work, we're actually invited, um, you know, Augusta National we'll, we'll, uh, invite, you know, I think it's 10 of our staff members, uh, and then our, our tournament directors that do the schedule, um, will sign, um, you know, those people to go to the, to the invitation. So, you know, like I said, you know, or like you said in 16, I was fortunate enough or lucky enough to go work. What's different about the majors for us, it's a different week because all this stuff that we talked about that we're responsible for, week in and week out, we have no responsibility. We're there to, we're a guest official. We're there to officiate. Um, we get our schedule, um, and we get to come and please come and go as we please. Um, and actually, um, spend some time enjoying, you know, the masters, you know, you might be working, you might be working hole 14 on Thursday. Well, you just need to be at hole 14 when the first group's coming down 14. So, uh, you know, you're able to wake up in the morning and maybe go take a walk around the golf course, uh, kind of inside the ropes because we're, you know, certainly allowed to be inside the ropes. So to be able to experience Augusta in that, in that, that, uh, aspect was, uh, was pretty special. It's just, you know, probably besides Pebble beach, uh, I was at Pebble beach, uh, for the last couple of years and, when you show up at, you know, golf courses that you see on television a lot, when you see them in person, sometimes they, 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 they might not look as, 
as special as they do on television, but you know, you get to walk Augusta national and uh, spend time there and, you know, walk around that facility. It's his, it's his, uh, it's his, as advertised it's everything, everybody. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's incredible. So, I mean, we just officiate, um, fortunately they, uh, they let us, you know, the tour officials be part of part of that golf tournament each year. And, you know, can't wait to go back. What, uh, what was your assignment in 2016? I worked, uh, the 14th hole okay. twice, the second hole, uh, and the, uh, fifth hole. So I, my, I, uh, I was got to watch a lot of golf. I don't, I think I gave one or two rulings that week. Um, oh. so I was in some situations where it was, uh, um, pretty, uh, pretty low key. So it was See? nice. So you kind of had a, almost had a working vacation at Augusta National. That'd be safe to say. Well, yeah, you could say that. I mean, of course, of course, I was there working. Right, right. No, I know you're working, <laughs> but not, but not the, but not the stress, not the stress and the the full scope of what your typical week at a at a tour event is. Is what I was kind of getting yeah, at. Yeah, I know. I'm still, yeah, I'm, I'm kidding. That's My a, wife thinks I'm on vacation every every week. I'm at work. Really. Well, okay. <laughs> I might need to change the the. You got to come back. Can't can't come back home with such a smile on your face. You know, after after a week. You know, boy, these these tour guys, man, they just yeah, chewing me out. And now, time for a quick bucket. Well, let's let's kind of get you out of here with just a couple of short questions here. We have a segment called uh, the the quick bucket here at the back of the range. These are just a couple of short random questions. And uh, since you are a tour official, we have a couple special ones since you are qualified to do so. But let's set you up with a couple easy ones. First one is if you want to if you're able to give a major championship to anyone in history, whether it's male or female, alive or dead or zero majors, 18 majors, anyone you want to give a major to, who would that be? Uh, it's a tough one. Maybe I'd give it to my wife. She could win the. Uh, oh my gosh! All right, I, huh? I, won't, that? I won't edit that out because it clearly you need to get some points at home. So I'll, I'll leave that one in. <laughs> so my wife's, you know, she 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 had aspirations of playing the LPGA Tour one time. So we'll we'll just we'll just let her have that glory. Brilliant husband, brilliant. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's go with this one. Um, Tiger Woods is going to try and win his fifth green jacket this year at the Masters. Uh, so Tiger's fifth green jacket versus Jack's 86 victory at the Masters, which would be the more substantial victory? I would say the 86. Would you at the, how do you feel about uh, the Roberto DiVincenzo uh, situation where he did, he signed the incorrect scorecard and did not win the Masters? Would you like to see that? changed or is that just pretty much the letter of the law how do you feel about that particular ruling it was unfortunate and i think um with the um you know you look way you know you look at uh you know pictures back then i think the scoring area was a picnic table yeah um I, uh so i think uh that's just kind of you know you need to that you know the scorecard um, you know, the rules of golf have gotten away from the scorecard being Bible, but, um, you still have to sign, you know, you got to get your hole by hole, right. You know, there's not much, you know, you know, you don't have to get the addition, right. But you have to make sure you get the hole by hole, right. But certainly, um, you know, they've changed the scorecard, uh, ruling now that will just add on to penalties than just to disqualify someone. So, 
you know, if you can't get the hole by hole, right, you know, unfortunately it's a pretty, pretty steep, uh, steep penalty, but you know, fortunately I think with scoring areas now and computer systems, it's, um, just never going to happen again. So pace of play, uh, the elephant in the room of professional tours, what can you say about how that is policed? Uh, what are your thoughts on getting these professionals around the golf course quicker? You know, if you want to just hit, hit on pace of play a little bit, I mean, you know, like I said, we, you know, that's part of, you know, 80%, 85% of the time we're on the golf course, all we're doing is talking about groups being in position. You know, the media thinks we do nothing well, without pace of play. And just because we're not giving penalties out doesn't mean we're doing nothing. I think the media and, well, I think the general public, because they just see it being slow, they just assume that you're not doing anything. Is there something that can be done, though, to give the optics that things are moving along? Like maybe not a stroke penalty or maybe not, um, uh, you, you know, maybe instead of, you know, docking them a, a stroke or, or a fine or maybe they get something taken off their FedEx Cup points. But but do you think that there needs that can there be something that is changed in the optics of slow play where it's visible that you're that the PGA Tour rules officials are doing something? Um, I think that's kind of hard. I, I, I think, um, you know, because you don't want to make, you know, as, as, as officials, you don't want to make yourself part of the competition. Right. So, um, you know, like I said before, we spend about 85% of our times making sure groups are playing, uh, you know, in position. I mean, you know, let's face it. It's a hard game. We're playing with green speeds at 12 and a half and rough at three, three or four inches. Um, and they're playing for $8 million. Um, and you know, you basically have all the factors of the guy's going to take their time and, and, and play, play at, at a pace, which is going to generally be, you know, just under four, just under five hours, um, sometimes depending on field size. But I think what, what the general public may not see a lot is, you know, field size in, in our, in our game is a, uh, contributes to slow play. You look at Phoenix, we had 132 players in Phoenix, which is probably 12 players too many um, because it is a stop and, <coughs> excuse me, a You're stop fine. and go golf course, a stop and go golf course where, you know, you, you know, you play two or three holes and then you come up to a reachable par five. Um, and since you have too many people on the golf course, just like anywhere, you drive on I four at seven thirty in the morning you have too many golf, you know, you have too many cars on I four traffic's going to be slow. Um, so, you know, we're trying to make sure each group plays or stays in position with the group ahead of them and plays, you know, the lead group, we set a time par for them, um, which, you know, sometimes is realistic. Sometimes it's, it's, it's not, but, you know, we end up, you know, our pace of play policy, uh, we warn every group before we're going to time them. And, uh, you know, if, if Joe golfer could sit in one of our golf carts for 12 and a half hours or 14 hours on a day, um, that's all you hear on the radio. Where's this group? Where's that group? This group, I'm going to warn this group, Right. you know, this group is this, this group is that. So, uh, you know, since we're not given penalties, um, you know, if we penalize somebody, a a stroke on the, you know, this week at AT&T, that's not going to make the rounds at Genesis play 10 minutes faster. 
because we gave a penalty the week prior. That's, you know, that's just not going to, that's not going to happen. And when you're in timing situations with these players, um, if a player has a bad time, just like if I was speeding, if I got caught speeding and I was guaranteed to get a warning every time, I'm not going to get caught speeding twice. <laughs> At least I hope I wouldn't. And uh, so these guys that are, when they're timed, if they have a hard shot, you know, you certainly, you know, you're timing some guys on some really hard golf courses and they might hit a shot in the woods. And, you know, if they feel like they have to take a minute and a half to uh, play that shot, then they get a bad time. And let's, we just happen. We haven't gotten to a, uh, we haven't gotten to a penalty situation um, in an individual event. We did give a penalty last year. Um, and ironically, the media kind of couldn't believe we did it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we gave a penalty in the foursome situation at Zurich. So, uh, um, you know, the media kind of looked at, I can't believe the tour finally figured out to give a penalty to some, some player in a unique format that we haven't played in stroke play in years. And I guess I could kind of see that, but, we were applying the policy. Sure. <laughs> so, but I think it's, uh, I, I think the new rules will help a little bit with pace of play. Um, certainly at the general level, um, being able to putt with the flag stick in, um, uh, there's going to be a, I think a, a local rule at the club level where a player, uh, can, well, they're probably doing this right now, but stroke and distance, you could just kind of drop it in the area where you think you lost your ball and just right. move on and be able to post the score with. So, I think stuff like that, which maybe the average golfer's been doing anyway, um, at least the rules will kind of cover that now, and I think that will help speed up the game. But, um, I mean, it's a hard, as you know, it's a, it's a hard game. Well, yeah, it's it's a tremendously difficult game, and, and hopefully uh, we can kind of revisit for uh, for another session, uh, another episode session, after the new rules are implemented in 2019, because I'd be... Uh, I think our listeners and, and myself included would be very fascinated to, to get your take on how things have gone with the new rules. So, Peter, I appreciate it, man. Really appreciate you taking the time to uh, to talk with uh, me and and you know I think our listeners are going to find this a, a very fascinating. What's your what's your next tournament that you're heading to? Uh, I leave Saturday to go do the Monday qualifier for the Genesis Open, and then I'll work uh, I'll work uh, the Genesis Open at Riviera Country Club and. Tigers back again, so uh, should be uh, should be some some good television. Hope everything goes well. Uh, give Tiger my best. He keeps calling me, but I'm kind of tied up doing all these interviews here. <laughs> but uh, but 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 best uh, best of luck to you uh, throughout the year, and uh, we'll definitely keep in touch. All right, Ben. Thank you for having me. And there you have it, another great episode here at the Back of the Range Golf Podcast. Special thanks to Peter Dashison for taking some time to speak with us. Don't forget, follow us on Instagram, subscribe in Apple Podcasts, leave a review. Please share this with your friends, and we will see you next week here at the Back of the Range.